it's pretty deep. You know, shopping in particular is a coping mechanism for an emotion we just can't bear. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Before we get into this conversation with Carrie Rattle on over shopping, searching for a sense in all the wrong places, I would like to ask a favor. If you've been enjoying this podcast, The Most Hated F Word, and our guest, please head over to Apple Podcast and leave a review. I'd greatly appreciate it. This was a fascinating conversation with Carrie. It was extremely interesting as Carrie really talked about the underlying emotions that we're trying to cope with when we shop. She talks a lot about how shopping has become a means of coping with emotions we can't bear. And if you think about the buffet of emotions that we've been experiencing over the last 12, 13 months during this pandemic, it's no wonder why we see online shopping increase. Of course, we can't get to the stores. We know that. However, After you listen to this conversation with Carrie, you see how we can often, as humans, confuse buying material goods with achieving happiness or satisfaction because our body excretes those dopamine rushes that make us feel confused. But as you'll learn from our conversation with Carrie, when we reflect back on what our underlying core needs actually are as human, shopping rarely fills the needs that we actually want, satisfying most of us just in the short term, shopping that is. So Carrie's question for us is, what are we really looking for when we're shopping? Is our urge to shop an indication that there's an underlying emotion that needs attention? Listen to this fascinating conversation with Carrie Rattle and please enjoy. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. Today, I'm pleased to have my guest, a former Canadian, well, still a Canadian, just residing in the U.S., Carrie Rattle. So who is Carrie? Carrie is a 30-year veteran executive of the financial industry, working in both Canada and the U.S., as well as abroad. She's also a certified divorce financial analyst and an accredited financial counselor. Carrie sits on the board of Savvy Ladies, a nonprofit focused on financially educating women as well as acting as a volunteer. To expand her depth of knowledge on the money psychology side, Carrie trained with psychotherapist and founder of Money Harmony, Olivia Mellon. Olivia is a money psychology pioneer and critically acclaimed author who has been hosted on shows such as Oprah. Carrie has delivered many keynote speeches and has been quoted in many media art news outlets such as CNBC, CBC, Advisor Next Door, Yahoo Finance, Success Magazine, to name a few. As I mentioned earlier, Carrie is Canadian. She's Canadian-born, but now holds dual citizens, having resided in New York for the last 23 years. Carrie, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. I'm so excited. And you'll probably see my Canadian accent come out in about a half an hour after talking with you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I'll look for it. Although your New York accent really brings me back to New York before the show. I was mentioning how much my wife and I just love New York. So maybe hold that just so I can vicariously live through your New York experience. I will try that for sure. And New York City is coming back in droves. So come visit us soon while there's still space to walk around because everybody's starting to come back. Oh, are they? Wow. My wife and I actually got engaged in New York. I surprised her with a trip down there and it was great. Nice. Uh, It's a wonderful, wonderful place. So today we're talking about over shopping. And I feel like this is a very important topic as it impacts so many of us. And especially when we look at ourselves now, March 2021, we're entering the second year of a global pandemic. We're facing many emotions that we've never faced before. We're at home. 
were on the computer more. And some of us, I know not me because I have two young kids, have more time and said that they've been bored during the pandemic. But if you have a two and four-year-old, that's not the case. (laughs) But we have this time and we're searching on the internet. And I know for myself, I've seen more Instagram ad promotions in last year than ever before. And I don't know if it's conspiracy theory or what, but maybe the marketers are taking advantage of it. Maybe I'm just noticing more of it. It doesn't really matter. The fact is, is that we're at home. We might be exposed to shopping more and we've got a lot of emotions going in our bodies right now. So that's why I'm so pleased to have you on the podcast because today you suggested a title, well, not a title, but a theme that you talk about, which I thought was so fitting. And it was searching for a sense in ourself in all the wrong places. So Carrie, maybe... My first question is, where did you come up with that title? And I could read it for face value, but what does that actually mean, searching for our sense of self in all the wrong places? So it's pretty deep. You know, shopping in particular is a coping mechanism for an emotion we just can't bear. And so trying to avoid that emotion sends us to a coping mechanism. And if shopping is your go-to coping mechanism, it becomes something that occurs on autopilot. But when you think about it, and I can certainly talk about retail forever, major retailers out there, I actually refer to as predators. And I refer to them as predators because they build on a fictitious world of aspiration and success. Oh, I felt that it, it's so bad. And, and as you said that, I just, oh, it made me cringe because they do. And this is not to speak terribly about the retail industry, but you're right. Sorry. I like your word predators as well. First, I do want to acknowledge that retail employs a lot of middle-class people, right? So I'm not advocating that we, we lose even more jobs and especially women. But, you know, over time, there has got to be a better way because going back to the sense of self, you know, retail, it's like uh, being stalked by a bad boyfriend, right? You'll get emails all the time. If you don't respond, then they're going to follow you around the internet and they're stalking you. And, you know, things like fear of missing out or if you wear this dress, the guy is going to love you. If you own this, you're going to fit in. When you think about it, A lot of that goes back to Maslow's core hierarchy of needs, like what we as humans really need. So, you know, we were threatened to our very core because shelter, safety, food, even those during COVID were threatened to some degree. You know, supply chains were interrupted. We lost people we loved. And then, you know, above that, when you you finally settle and have those basics again, You've got love and affection, need for self-esteem, which is having personal accomplishments, need for esteem from others. And when you're locked in your home, you're cut off from relationships and, you know, peer groups to a large degree. Zoom isn't quite the same thing. And so finding that sense of self, finding satisfaction for those very core needs is really difficult and we are in world trauma. So it's finding sense of self in all the wrong places by going shopping. As you're saying that, I, I feel like the part that's so addictive and damaging is that in the moment, it works to some degree where I buy something and that dopamine rush makes my head feel good or my body feel good. But as we know, it, it just, it quickly dissipates. Yes, it does. When you when you look at shopping, so there might be people listening being like, wow, that's me. I know before we record, I said, I've, I've had those tendencies where despite all the logic that the, the information I get by being a, a CFP and in this financial planning world, I am a human who has emotions <laughs> and those come up and hey, it might feel good to buy this. And as we know, it dissipates. But for people listening, can you explain, I, I know you talk about the difference between impulse shopping versus compulsive shopping. I would like to touch on both of them and get your thoughts. Sure. So impulsive shopping is probably what most of us do, unless you have incredible discipline and incredible self-restraint. And I have yet to meet someone like that. So impulsive shopping might be occasionally 
you'll see something on sale and say, oh, I've always wanted one of those. I hadn't planned on buying it today, but here it is and it's a good price. So that's impulse shopping. Compulsive shopping comes from a very different place, Sean. So impulsive shopping, it's, it's something external that has attracted you, right? Compulsive is when you have an emotion inside and you can't sit here and live with it. So it doesn't matter if anything is on sale. You go shopping. You choose to go shopping because you have to avoid that really uncomfortable emotion and your go-to coping mechanism, which could have been created years ago, is what you do to avoid thinking about it. It reminds me of that saying about emotions of what gets suppressed gets expressed. So I know shopping or the impulse, I'm shopping and something looks good, but how do I get to the compulsive side? So I have just a, a lovely story to share. And this is with a client who has actually recovered. I worked with a client who was a renowned doctor in her field and she got breast cancer. Her treatments affected her cognitive abilities. At the end of her treatments, she could no longer function as a doctor. So when you think of all the years she put into it, all the caring she gave to her child patients, she lost her sense of identity. And then, you know, she recovered, but she was no longer the bread earner in the family. So her husband left her. So she lost love and affection. And then her mother died. So she lost another core relationship. So a high functioning woman went back to a coping mechanism for self-soothing and some control in her life. And where it came from was when she was a little girl, her grandmother would take her shopping and make her feel like a princess. So it was a default for her. In working with her in the coaching, we went back to what it meant, but what was it doing to her now? And in compulsive shopping, you know, you get into a destructive phase. You spend too much money in the household. You may lose your relationship if you're overspending. You can get into debt. So all sorts of serious repercussions exist, even though it's considered the smiled upon addiction. When you say the smiled upon addiction, can you elaborate? Yeah. So two things. First of all, Many of my clients had a previous addiction, not everyone. So you think of gambling, which can destroy a household in one night, you know, cocaine use, incredibly damaging health-wise, right? Shopping is quite often hidden because if you shop, you're supporting the economy. So it's sometimes considered an addiction that the healthcare industry isn't sure if it's an impulse control disorder or an addiction, but it's serious. So it's smiled upon because it's a lesser than addiction. Sometimes it doesn't do as much damage and it's supposed to support the economy. So why not? That's yeah, tough. It, it really, yeah. It, with your story about the doctor, I can see how, I just want to go back to her, of all those things happening, the loss of identity, the loss of love, like you said, how this void when you're vulnerable like that gets filled so much by that real chemical. And that's the part I think is so challenging with this is not only that do we have this real dopamine chemical that's making us feel good, but you just made me think of something else is that the rationalization that can easily happen, like I deserve this and I'm supporting the economy. When you hear that narrative or that story that we tell ourselves, I deserve it. What would you guess in your coaching sessions reflect back to the the client, if they said, well, no, Carrie, I, I deserve this. I've had a hard you know, year. Or my kids have been very difficult in the last two years during COVID. I deserve this. So there are a few things. First of all, it's everyone deserves a treat or a reward sometimes, right? It's helping them understand how often they might say that. So, you know, you, Sean, might say, wow, it's, it's been a brutal month, I've just got a breakthrough and, and I'm going out on the town for a nice dinner with my wife. It's another thing when you get off of a, a meeting on Zoom and say, wow, I was made to feel lesser than I, I need to feel better. I'm going shopping or, you know, my kids have been home all day. 
I deserve a reward for getting through it. When you help them understand, and usually getting back to finances, right, which is your expertise, helping them understand every time they spend and logging it without judgment. It's it's helping them connect the dots between I deserve to how often did I deserve to what's the total cost to me for how often I saw it self-soothing. And so writing down their purchases and listing them without judgment just helps them start to connect the dots about how many times they're doing this in a day or a week. Yeah, I think that enables you to kind of zoom out, observe what's happening and feel those emotions. But as we know that dealing with emotions isn't the easiest thing on earth. Clicking buy on Amazon might be a little easier, especially if you have Amazon Prime. But when we click that buy button or or we're in the store and swipe our credit card, we talked about this with the emotions, but what are we really looking for in terms of what void are we trying to cover for ourselves when we overshop? We've already touched on it a bit, but I really want to focus specifically on this so that people can give words to that feeling or emotion that they're feeling. Yeah. So a lot of people come to me and say, wow, it's, it's been boredom in COVID, right? And I'll say, so next time you shop, think about how you're feeling because quite often it's not boredom, right? I'm in the middle of COVID. I don't know if my kids are going to be in school tomorrow or not. I don't know if I'm going to have a job. So there's lack of control, right? So part of it might be panic. I have no control over my life, but I have control. If I find that item, I buy it, it arrives. There is familiarity. There is control. That's sort of one really strong emotion. Another one is a sense of belonging. So you can't be outside with your friends and Zoom isn't quite the same. The other day I was out hiking with a couple of friends who've now been vaccinated and we were all wearing masks and one actually dared to hug me, right? And I thought, oh, that's so nice, right? Like just a a real hug. And so Instead of finding that sense of belonging or that relationship, people would go to something like Facebook, which leads to Facebook Marketplace, right? And so, okay, I'm belonging in my Facebook buddies and, oh, what's on on Facebook Marketplace because that's my, my world today. Or the same with Instagram, Right. You know, if you aspire and right now you feel like you're not attached to anything, where are you going? Where do you belong in the world anymore? You look at influencers on Instagram and say, wow, you know, they look successful. I want to be them. And so Instagram, last time I looked, they were playing around with a shopping cart. So you see an influencer with an incredibly expensive thing that was given to them for free. But you say, wow, I want to be like them. And so you end up buying it. So all of these emotions, and we feel thousands of emotions every day. So it's important when you're going shopping to sort of sit back and say, okay, where did I just come from? What's going on with me? And which emotion am I feeling now that's driving this? Because that's also key, Sean, to recovering, to identify those emotions. Right. A few things here are jumping into my brain. I really liked how you said, think about what you're thinking when you go and purchase something. And I think that's so important for us to work towards rewiring those thinking patterns that we're just, we're acting on. It allows us to interrupt that pattern to some degree. I had that in my head and then you brought up Facebook marketplace. And then I thought, oh, What they're trying to do is just completely not allow us to think about what we're thinking. And I've heard many people talk about this Facebook marketplace. The best analytics that know what you searched up, you log in there, you get a dopamine rush because there's something new happening. You're like, oh, rescroll my, not only am I refreshing and new things are coming up, but it's custom towards what I'm already thinking about because looked at my search last time. How can we, I think this, this goes to impulsive shoppers and compulsive shoppers. How do we help ourselves with this? Because technology is getting so intuitive that it knows what we want. And 
I don't know. I'm, I'm making statement over generalizing here, but it's like we're not even thinking anymore. It's just click, 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 click. What would your recommendations be when someone's trying to think about it, but they got Facebook open, Instagram? It's a little tough, but it's doable. It's because I help people with this all the time. So I, I don't want anyone to get frustrated, you know, if they try it once and say, oh, it's not working. You, you know, before I get to three core tactics I can give you, What's important to recognize is that this coping mechanism, you've been doing it for so long, it's a six-lane highway. So you feel something, and then the on-ramp is in your brain. It's an easy on-ramp, and it's a six-lane highway that's so easy to get on. It's like autopilot, and you're not even thinking sometimes, right? You just pick up your phone, and you're scrolling, or you're, you just finished a Zoom meeting, and you pull up a tab, and you start looking, right? So... What's important to understand is that you are starting to build a new hiking trail. So you're cutting down the brush. You don't have an on-ramp. You're climbing up a little hill and cutting down the brush to create a new path in your brain, right? So it's not that hard, but it takes a little bit of work. And so you want to stop yourself from getting on that same old on-ramp onto the six-lane highway. So the first thing is to sort of sit back and try to put a pause between I'm feeling, some people feel agitated, some people feel calm because they know they're about to get that hit, some people feel, you know, pain in their their lower abdomen, some people get a headache. Like if you track yourself for a while, you're going to feel your body's telling you it's bubbling to the surface and your emotions are going to tell you that you, you have this urge. So what's most important is to, to realize the longer the pause you put between your feeling and that click or the feeling and whatever you're about to do to, to make that purchase, the safer you are because the emotion itself will dissipate. So it's the pause between the emotion and the action. So that's what you want to try to achieve. So first of all, it's trying to figure out what is your emotion. For example, if you just felt really crappy after a call, something bubbled up, you're really missing love and affection from friends or, or someone, you just have to start looking at healthier alternatives. If you need love and affection at that moment, shopping is only going to fill it, as you say, in a second. If you have a puppy, go hug the puppy. If you have kids, go hug the kids. If you're missing a girlfriend, call her up, right? So put the pause in, but have ready alternatives. And literally with my clients, they have a list. It's either on their phone, if that's usually how they shop, or by their PC. And it's, okay, I'm feeling this emotion. What are all the other things I can do right now? Or, you know, if, if you're feeling need for esteem from others, is, is there a networking group you can just join online? Or can you put a mask on and go serve the food bank for a couple of hours? Whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, what I, I really admire about what you're talking about here is, what we talked about already is the thinking about what you're thinking, but then you added the layer of what emotions are happening. And what I really admire about that approach is, you're not telling me to just use willpower to overcome these urges because I've learned from experience willpower is fleeting at best, which then accompanies shame, guilt, that why can't I do this? And what I like is you're really going at the root of the problem is identifying that emotion. Now, on the emotion part, I don't know what other people feel about emotions, but the last two, three years, I've been on an emotion journey where I thought I knew what emotions were. I took emotional intelligence. I, I lead. I have staff. I thought I was emotionally literate. And then I realized I was, I was fairly unemotionally literate when I had to start naming emotions and recognizing emotions. I took the tactic of being distracted and doing other things. When you're starting to work with people, what are some tactics to help them actually name and then even sit with that emotion? Mm. So naming usually comes after the fact. We have a huge list of what we refer to as emotional shades. They're very subtle, tons of emotions, right? And part of the program that we have is 
giving them the list and it's not right away. You know, it's, it's further in the program when they're starting to even admit that they have some basic emotions. But then after the fact, and sometimes it's at the end of the day to reflect back and okay, you shopped, no judgment. It's a data point for you. What was happening within context? What drove you to shop? Was it constant pressure all day? So was it a frustration? Was it a simmering anger? Was it, you know, missing someone? feeling bad for yourself. So we give them a significant list. And if they use that through a few weeks, you begin to see patterns so that you can help say, oh yeah, I remember how that felt. Now I have a name for it. You know, I just left so-and-so and that's how they made me feel. And so it helps them self-identify. You know, we can identify our emotions every second or minute of the day, but it helps them at least find a few core ones, Sean, that they can try to find alternatives for because the more often you put that pause in, you don't have to be perfect. You're human. But the more often you put the pause in, the more you build that ability. And going back to willpower, willpower is great, except when you're tired or cranky or stressed. And I think we're feeling all those things after being locked up for a year. I don't know about you. Yeah. I think it's great that you have those examples that you can give them because I know from my experience, when I, when I seen lists of emotions or feelings, then you can be like, ah, yeah, that's what I'm feeling. And then to use your words, you give them the language to then be able to self-identify, which I think is really, really empowering versus the other tactic that we've seen sometimes, even when you see some financial planners or other financial specialists, we're like, just do this. Like, here's the facts. Why aren't you doing this? (laughs) Well, you know, it's so interesting you say that, right? Just do this. When my clients come to me, they'll say things like, I'm not a stupid person. Why can't I do this? As in stop. Or I'm not a bad person. Why can't I stop doing this? Right? It's not that simple. So you need to have compassion for yourself. Oh my goodness, there are layers. You know, and especially like any habit, Sean, if you've been doing this for years, it's not going to stop tomorrow. You have to give yourself a bit of a break here. So say someone's listening and... Again, I think it's whether it's compulsive or impulsive. If we are seeking to have some sort of change, how much resistance can I expect if I'm going down this journey? And what would you say to me? Because we see this with change a lot is that we want to change. We believe we want to change. We try. The resistance peaks its big burly head and we then start having negative talk. Like, oh, I'm not good enough. I can't change and the negative narrative goes on. What would you say to someone who might be in this journey already or about to embark on this journey about the resistance that I feel like they're going to face? So you've chosen shopping as a coping mechanism because you had an emotion you couldn't bear. So now facing down that emotion takes a little bit of time, right? And sometimes it's, it's due to childhood. You form that thought or belief in childhood And when you're a child, your world is much smaller. So it's of more significance, whatever happened. Whereas if you reflect on it now, which we have clients do, you know, you can put it in a very different context and you are wiser. So I have a client I work with and she was hoping that as soon as she started working with me and our program is like 13 to 15 sessions, but the client does work, you know, in between. She thought as soon as she started with me, she would stop shopping. And I explained to her, I said, oh my gosh, no, you are going to receive some little level of resistance or some big level of resistance all along the way because you have to uncover those emotions, but you also have to stop a habit and you have to want to stop. And meanwhile, you've got your little ego sitting on your shoulder saying, oh no, don't change. Change is scary. Where we are right now is safe. We know what's going to happen. We're used to familiar things. You know, don't go there, right? And I have an ego and my ego has a red dress and high-heeled red shoes. And her name is Alex. 
And when Alex says, oh, no, don't do that, you're going to embarrass yourself, or no, 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 that's, you know, it's too big of a bridge to jump over, I'll just say, Alex, thanks for sharing, and I flicker, out, off. So, you know, helping clients have fun with this in the resistance, because it's your ego and fear, right? That your ego is is helping you with that fear, like, oh, my gosh, I change, but what does change look like? I'm okay now. I'm living and breathing. And the problem is that your body, when it, it creates fear, it still thinks you're staring down a saber-toothed tiger, right? It doesn't know the difference. You, you know this. And so, you know, when it says, no, 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 it's dangerous, it's like, nah, I'm just crossing the street. No saber-toothed tiger. I'm just not going to shop today. No saber-toothed tiger. Part of challenging that resistance is breaking it down into bits. And I also actually try to make it kind of fun for my clients because you can laugh at yourself and you can call your ego a name. And and I tell you, they have fun flicking their ego off their shoulder. Yeah, I think that's great that flicking the ego. My ego's name is Mr. Shy, by the way, if you're ever curious. But uh, I think everyone has that ego. Well, we all do, of course. And naming it and then the physical flicking is such a great idea. Next time I find myself on uh, Amazon or Facebook, I'm going to try this out. Now, we've talked a lot about ourselves in terms of if I'm being impulsive or compulsive, one or the other, some really good strategies about thinking about what we're doing, putting that space. It reminds me of that Viktor Frankl quote, between stimulus and response, there's a space and the more space lies our power. We've talked about emotions. We've talked about naming that inner critic. I want to switch gears to if if we have a spouse, a family member, or a loved one who this is where I want to be careful. We observe that they may have compulsive shopping tendencies or maybe even impulsive ones that are bordering to the compulsive side. My first part is, well, so how do we approach that in a compassionate and non-judgmental way? And how do I know if I'm just making an observation or if I'm actually just being judgmental because I'm angry that they're spending their money. So I like the fact that you started out with a compassionate and non-judgmental way. It's really important for the observer to educate themselves first. So whether it's hugely impulsive or compulsive shopping, you know, Compulsive shopping is either an impulse control disorder or an addiction, depending on who you talk with. It is not something that anyone can just stop doing tomorrow. And so it's really important for the loved one to truly appreciate that and to also understand that if they see this person and this person is denying This person actually probably does know at some level, but they are so ashamed and so afraid of being judged that it's suppressed. So people are still in denial when they come to me, but they realize that there's a problem. So starting out there, educating yourself, there are also a couple of short questionnaires, like a page each on the homepage of our website, Stopping Over Shopping. You can download them in a second and read them and just sort of assess the person you think is an overshopper. Do you think they're behaving in any of these ways? You know, certain things, I mean, there, there are many behaviors that you can observe that will lead you to understand they're more likely compulsive. And it's not just one. You probably want to see a handful of them occurring, but things like buying items and leaving the price tag on sneaking things in and bringing them out of the closet three months later. Oh, no, no, this isn't new. I've always had it, right? So things like that, they may try to hide how much they spend. You know, I have some clients who actually have hidden credit cards of debt from their spouses. They're not being malicious. They truly are so ashamed, so, so ashamed, and they they just couldn't deal with it. If you are a compulsive shopper yourself, You may feel that real rush of euphoria, but right after shopping, you crash and burn. Whereas a regular shopper, you'll get a high, but you'll come down at a slower level. Like, you know, a couple of days later, okay, I have it, blah, blah, blah. But a compulsive shopper comes down almost immediately. 
Sometimes if you're a compulsive shopper, you feel like you're completing a forbidden act, right? Because you sort of know you shouldn't be doing it, but you're doing it anyway. So a couple of things like that. If you lie and it's the lie starts out small, one item and you may hide it, but then it gets bigger or you find you're saying to your child, don't tell mom about this. Don't tell dad about this. This is just between you and I, not healthy. So first of all, educating yourself as the observer. Second of all, knowing some of these behaviors exist. Um, and if you're thinking you yourself might be one, understanding how they think. And then getting back to the tactics, right? You as the observer, what you can help with is if you can see someone during a day, if you can tell if your spouse or your partner is really frustrated today. So then just kind of record without judgment. Okay. When that shopping purchases come up on the credit card, was that the day? So frustration is something that may drive it. Okay. What can I do as the observer to help them ease that frustration in other ways and have things at the ready? Right now, it's actually a little easier because most of us are still at home with our partners. Sometimes it's in the evening, just record. How did your partner behave? And then look at the credit card statements and say, okay, I see some patterns here and you don't necessarily want to tell your partner that you've been recording everything that's been happening. You want to be gentle and subtle and just try to offer alternatives on your own to help them. So what I'm hearing you say is you're not pointing out the behavior in and itself. As the observer, you want some real change and connection with this individual. You need to get to the emotional level as well. Yeah. Do they bring up at all spending and their concern from spending? Or is this just for some good change? We first start with the emotions. When do we bring up spending if there is a time? Okay, so you and I could talk a whole different podcast on this. We're both in the financial services industry and we know how often couples don't talk about money, right? So if you're a couple and you normally don't talk about money, talking about overspending right now is like, you just made somebody a target, right? So you want to start out with a bigger context, like, wow, okay. Do you mind if we sit down together and talk? It's been a tough year. Do you mind if we just talk about household expenses? Because quite often a compulsive shopper or an over shopper have money vagueness, right? They never learned how to connect shopping to a dollar amount to how it affects the household. And they may not even know how much money the household has and how much other expenses are. So they may have no idea how much harm they are doing. And so sometimes bringing them in as the team member, and it's got to be gentle because these people are going to be defensive. The first few times, you may not even want to talk about overspending. You may just want to talk about hey, let's be a team on the finances because I'm having trouble by myself here and I need a second good brain. And then eventually helping them understand how their behavior is fitting into sort of the bigger picture. Yeah, I, I really think that's such an important point that you bring up here because you, you talked about how much the immense levels of shame that they're already feeling. And as the observer, if you, based on what you're saying, if you go in there with, a bucket of shame to dump on top of the existing shame. That's certainly not compassionate and it definitely is not going to help anything. I'm just thinking in my head is like that observer has a really big role as if it's a family, if it's a spouse to exactly what we were talking about ourselves is operate with compassion, but the observer as well, if they're getting a lot of resistance at what point, like, they're trying their best. The naming emotions is difficult. Naming other people's emotions even is even more difficult if they're trying to take this approach but still feel blocked, the observer. Are there any, like I guess, more drastic measures? Is it contacting someone on their behalf? I can imagine that's going to elicit a lot of different shame and frustration that's not going to work. But if someone is just feeling really stuck, what would you suggest? So somebody will not seek help 
until they're ready, but every person will face it down in a different way. You know, some of my over shoppers, it's threat of divorce. Some it's a level of debt they can no longer bear. So they could handle 20,000, they can handle a 50,000 in debt, but now they're at a hundred and it has to stop or their world gets smaller and you know, they've got too much clutter. They can no longer handle it. So they have to agree to it. But here's what I can say. There is education out there. We have lots of free education on our website. And if you think you have a compulsive shopper, but you're not sure, call me, man. Just call me. I can help you through it because every person is at a different stage with different emotions. And sometimes you have to protect yourself by actually leaving them if they are not willing to change. And, you know, if if you're at your point where you've got a life to live and you have a partner dragging you down, life choices have to be made on both sides. You know, I have one compulsive shopper. Her biggest trigger is her husband. She needs so much love and affection and he's a narcissist and he thinks he's giving her wonderful love and affection. Meanwhile, he's making her feel terrible and her shopping would stop if she left him. But it's not my place to, to tell her that. It's my place to help her through thinking how else can she get love and affection and how can she have a better life and a healthier life? Lots of layers, hey? It's heartbreaking. Lots of layers, lots and lots. You know, it just goes back to this fundamental need that all humans want to feel heard, valued, and seen. And if those basic needs aren't being met, we seek them in different ways. And addiction in many facets, whether shopping or others, comes in. And I like how you've talked about how this, I, I think it was depending on who you talk to, a disorder or a disorder or addiction, or was it a disorder and something either an impulse control disorder or addiction. So in the medical health community, there's, there's always discussion on which is it. Okay. But what I like about that is that it's framing it in a way of that person's not bad. They have this, this addiction or how we're framing it depends on who we're talking to. But just as someone might have diabetes or just as someone might have high blood pressure. And I think allowing us to have that frame, if we can have some compassion, will allow greater chance for ourselves to work through it, or if it's our spouse, partner, whomever. So I think that's a really important point you put. I have a a final question that uh, is kind of outside of this conversation, but for people who are interested in the work you're doing, I just look at the time here. I want to be mindful of time. For people who are interested in the work you're doing, I believe I read this about you, but maybe it wasn't Somewhere did I read online that you bought a, a company in 2020 or during the pandemic? Was that you? I did. Yeah, okay. I did. Fill us in on where can people hear more of Carrie, your one company and, and a company you just picked up on the supermarket. <laughs> As we're talking about compulsive buying, she's buying companies. <laughs> no. Um, where can people find more about you? So you can find me on LinkedIn, Carrie Rattle. I think there's only one of me. So far, I haven't found a, another so my core company is Behavioral Sense, and I work with professional women on their money behaviors and money psychology, very gently. Gently? Gently. What is that? So no judgment, and I promise no deprivation. I see. Okay. Oh, hey, that's good. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I sort of translate all the Wall Street stuff, as I'm sure you do, because you're a pretty enlightened CFP. You know, I translate all the... Wall Street money lingo into normal terms. So that's my core business, behavioralsense.com. And then my second business actually is stopping over shopping. I had uh, worked with Dr. April Benson, who built the business for, I guess, two years. And April decided to retire and she said, I want you to buy my business. Oh, wow. So we are friends and I love it. It's good for my soul. I enjoy helping women and, and men, but predominantly women so much. And yes, I, I did buy it in the middle of a pandemic because why not? So Carrie, was there an emotion you were trying to fill? <laughs> yeah, a big one. Yeah. My soul. <laughs> yeah. Well, I can, I can tell by your work online that I've read about you and just, just during this conversation that 
this is work that aligns with your soul and it, it comes through clearly. So I appreciate you sharing knowledge here. Now, a question. You mentioned a couple times that you work with women. Is it because you're a woman and you connect well, or is there a tendency for one gender to be more susceptible to overshopping? So it's it's interesting. I started my work with women in behavioral sense because there are many social norms that convince women they are not good with money when in fact that's totally incorrect, as you and I both know. So I spend a lot of time trying to destroy those social norms, which believe it or not, still exist today. I know dads who have like 20-year-old daughters and they're still telling them that they'll marry Prince Charming who'll take care of their money. It's like, dude, I know lots of men who don't know how to manage money at all. Like, what are you doing to these daughters? But anyway, getting into the stopping over shopping side, it's a good question, right? Because women are historically known to be shoppers. And when you think about it, who goes to get the birthday cards and the cough medicine at the drugstore and who often goes to get the groceries and, you know, women wear makeup, men don't typically. So we buy more stuff, but, you know, some research will say that there are as many men who are compulsive shoppers. And the difference is that men, number one, aren't quite as comfortable acknowledging it because Shopping is more an okay woman's thing to do. And part of it is men call themselves collectors, whether it's a hundred ties or 50 suits or, you know, 200 pairs of shoes or a hundred bottles of cologne in the bathroom or 10 cars in a warehouse. You know, that is such a good observation is that why you're right. They're collectors. We collect cars. It's so terrible. And then they evaluate and judge someone for buying makeup and calling them a shopper. And they like to go with their friends and shop, but yet they're buying these expensive cars. And I appreciate that you work specifically, not specifically, but predominantly with women because you're right. And I've come across like grossly disturbing research that just shows like how our system of money, of employment practice, of salary quality it just favors the male and it, and it should not be that way. And this one paper that's sticking out in my head, I, I've talked about it before on the podcast is I can't remember the name of it or who the author was or the researcher, but basically the one quote stands out. She's like, nowadays the woman is supposed to bring home the bacon, cook the bacon, clean up the bacon and watch the man eat the bacon. And it's unbelievable. And then we add the shopping element, you're right. Why can men say they're collectors and then say females are over shoppers? You know, and don't forget those, those men are also feeling their own shame, right? Because they're supposed to be Prince Charming who, who knows how to manage the household money. And meanwhile, they're hiding terrible secrets, right? As they're flowing through money and they're, they're probably not showing their finances to their other half because they're so incredibly embarrassed, you know? So it's, it's important to have compassion for that. But it's the reason I built behavioral sense. I mean, I, I used to work on Wall Street and I figured very naively after I worked 30 years, Sean, that I could help close the wage gap. And it's still only 82 cents, you know, for every dollar a man makes for a white woman. And so I just decided, you know, okay, so I failed at plan A. I'm going to try plan B, which is money. Money gives you an equal voice in the world. So now I help women learn to save money, get out of debt, and then I hand them over to an advisor like yourself so that, I mean, women have power, but Money buys a voice. You see that in politics, you see it in charities, you see it in all sorts of things. And so I'm on plan B for the next 30 years, Sean. Well, I'm glad you are. And I think something that you are gifting as a byproduct of this money is that self-efficacy or the agency to take the control back for the clients that you work with. And I think that's a gift that you, I guess your clients would be grateful for. Fills my soul. I can tell. And I don't think there's many over-shopping advisors or, I don't know what you call, specialists like yourself. So today's conversation interested people. I definitely head, or head over to Behavioral Sense. Or what's, what's the website for the over-shopping? The second site is Stopping Over Shopping. You can find me at either. 
All right. And, and any links you can send me afterwards and I'll put those in the show notes. Happy to. And my final question though, I'm finally at that question 10 minutes later is let's pretend that you're 30 years of this behavioral sense and over stop over shopping career is done and you're 90 years old. I always pick 90. I don't, actually don't know how old you are, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You're 90 years old, looking back at your life on this beautiful front porch in Canada or New York, whichever you prefer. And you're pondering to write a letter to, do you have kids? No, but I have two bunnies. They don't read, but I could write it to them anyway. You're pondering to give a, a letter to your, your bunny's descendants. Who is going to share it with some people? No, actually, you're writing a letter to your clientele, females, about what you've learned along life's journey, navigating a healthy relationship with money. What would you write to them in that letter? Oh, wow. I would say know that the capability lies within. Dealing with money is like traveling to another country. You're still you. You're still capable of doing anything you ever could and more. You're just learning a new language. And once you get control of your cash, you are going to feel an incredible lightness and power to take on the world and lift that anxiety now. Just own it. Do it. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for sharing your insights, your wisdom, and I'll definitely include all the links and look forward to some future conversations. This has been just absolutely lovely. And I don't know if my Canadian accent popped out, but it's been fun. You know what? I totally forgot to look for it as I was just into the conversation. Well, thank you, Sean. I really appreciate it. This has been just a lovely interview. Thank you. Thank you to Carrie for spending her time with us today. And thank you to listeners. I appreciate you listening to the podcast. If you want to make my day, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. It means a lot. I'd appreciate it. See you next time.